0: Man, so are, have we moved beyond the black squares? I saw yesterday, you probably saw this phenomenon if you went to various music outlets or, or websites or even Instagram, people posting black squares uh, to to essentially highlight uh, racial injustice in this country. A whole lot of people posting black squares. St- Everywhere it, it picked up steam as the day went on. If you tried to get into Apple music, for example, I, I think Spotify was the same way. You got a black screen saying they were essentially, uh, using the day to, to focus on what matters. Uh, it was a blackout Tuesday. Some people want to do a whiteout Wednesday or some such. Now I kid you not. Uh, trying to raise awareness. Here's the problem with this sort of, and, and I don't mean to be cynical about it because some people really do care about it. But I find that when stuff like this happens, a couple of things happen concurrently. First, one of the things that happens is a level of shaming sets in that if you're not putting up the black square, uh, there's a problem. Uh, In fact, I did see several people uh, yesterday suggest that No one wanted to see your real pictures on Instagram and people who saw advertisements were going after the advertisers. Uh, Other people were trying to be shamed because they put up a picture that was not a black square. Still, others will overreact and say, you know what? You're going to put up a black square. I'm going to put up a white square. I'm I'm not going to put up any of this stuff. Uh, Screw you people for doing this sort of virtue signaling. You see that as well. Uh, and, and then you also see the worst aspect of it, and that is the people who put up the black square and then decide they have done something for humanity. You know, it, it it's very much like uh, remember when the Boko Haram kidnapped all those girls in Africa? And the left thought if they just tweeted good thoughts and feelings, it would get the girls back, or or some such that they, they, they virtue signaled with a video. We get this all the time. Uh, Hollywood, Hollywood has has released a letter yet again. Hollywood celebrities have released a letter calling on uh, full defunding of police and military. They claim that healthcare costs, uh, healthcare spending by the government has gone down, and police and military spending has gone up every year. Y'all, a black square on social media isn't going to do anything. You, you have done exactly zero to help the thing uh, that inspires you, the the thing that you want to be inspired by, the thing that you want to help, the thing that you want to improve, uh, the thing you want to engage in. Putting up a black square on social media does absolutely nothing. It may make you feel good, but it does nothing to bring George Floyd back to life. It does nothing to keep a George Floyd situation from happening. And it does nothing. Absolutely nothing. Your black square does nothing but make you feel like you played a part in something without you actually having to play a part in something. You can pat yourself on the back if you can reach your arm around, give yourself a good pat on the back that you made yourself feel good. Good, good for you. Here's the thing if you're going to post the black square, you got to actually do something. You know, part, part of the problem, you know what really ails us right now more than anything? There are, there are lots of problems in the country, but I, I really firmly do believe that the number one problem that ails the United States as a nation is that our nation is configured differently than other nations, and, and that's not the problem. The problem is we wish to respond in ways that, like other nations, would respond. You know, when you're talking about, for example, I don't know, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, you were talking about uh, a nation with a population half the size of ours or less uh, that is overwhelmingly demographically homogenous, that has a queen. You, You talk about the, well, talk about the Dutch the Dutch, a small country of a people who are mostly, uh, with the exception of, of the descendants of their former colonies, mostly a people who all look alike, have the same language, have the same values. When you talk about the United States of America, you're talking about the, the fourth largest, fourth, yeah, fourth largest land mass. On the planet and one of the largest populations on the planet, 350 million people on the planet, uh, spread across uh, the fourth largest land mass of, of, of one nation on the planet, separated into 50 states and several territories who speak a multitude of languages, who have a multitude of skin colors, a multitude of backgrounds, uh, one size fits all in other countries and not here. So our founders very geniusly decided to divide the country up in the states that existed. And then as new land masses were grown with population, carve them into new states. And each of those states could decide pretty much everything except for 17, 18 things ceded to Washington, D.C. And we now forget that the states largely have plenary power, as we should have seen during the pandemic, and the governors out there engaged in ways the federal government can't be engaged. And yet we still put all of our hope and all of our trust, not in Jesus, but in Washington, D.C., I mean, even more than half the Christians in this country operate as if they need a political savior. They need somebody other than the man who died on the cross and rose again from the dead to save them from the Democrats. It's amazing. Jesus Christ can apparently save you people from the devil, but not from Joe Biden. You got to have Donald Trump to do that. Stop fixating on Washington, D.C. Look to your community. Stop fixating on Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Now, part of it is the news. Part of it, you have to. We're a news program. I can't abandon talking about politics. I can't abandon talking about Washington, D.C., but let's at least calibrate ourselves such that we understand that Washington should not matter as much as it does, and all of us, every single one of us, and the people not listening to this program this morning, have, in fact, made Washington way more important to their lives than it should be. We should not be wondering, what is Washington going to do? What is Washington going to do to fix this? what is Donald Trump going to do to fix this? Well, what would Joe Biden do differently? You know, can we really take seriously the argument that the world would be better off if Joe Biden were president than Donald Trump when it was Joe Biden who authored the crime law that rounded up half the young black men in this country and put them in jail? Really, is is that what you're gonna do? A guy who had 40 years in Washington DC, contributing to the problems, not fixing the problems that people say are now a problem, that somehow Joe Biden is gonna fix the situation in a way Donald Trump won't, really? We're, we're going to say that the government that brought us, what, slavery and Jim Crow and interracial marriage bans and affirmative action and broken families and a war on poverty that kept people in poverty, that that government has the solutions for what ails us? Really? Is that what we're going to do here? We're going to put a black square on, on Instagram. We're going to pat ourselves on the back. And we're going to say, let the government take care of it. We'll go get Joe Biden elected, and and he'll fix it, even though he spent forty years making it worse. Is is that where we're? Because that seems to be where we're headed. That that seems to be what's going on in the country right now. Is is let's make this all about politics. Let's amplify everything and get people upset and say we're going to do have an election we're going to change Washington, maybe we'll change our state legislature and our governor, and by God, they'll fix everything. Why now? If we've had these problems for as long as we have had these problems, why now? Why will the government fix them now? Because of social agitation? We had social agitation in the 1960s. We had social agitation in the 1970s. We had social agitation in the 1980s. We had social agitation in the 1990s. The last time the Insurrection Act of 1807 was used, it was used by George H.W. Bush to quell rioting in Los Angeles in the wake of the Rodney King violence. What Rodney King? Remember him, young people? So wait, we had this problem in 1992 with police brutality against Rodney King, and, and we have the George Floyd situation now. And what? Uh, suddenly, 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 the government of the United States or the state government—they're going to fix all the problems because you put a black square on Instagram. Oh my goodness, God bless you for 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 putting that black square on Instagram, and then turning away and not doing anything. What are you going to do? You're going to go show up and vote. Who are you going to vote for? Are you going to vote for Joe Biden, the man who wrote the laws that caused the problems? Yeah. Oh, because he's not Donald Trump. See, my point here is not to be cynical or snide. It's to point out that a lot of people want to abdicate their personal responsibility to a government removed from them who really has no impact on their day-to-day life. How about this? How about this? Instead of focusing fixating on donald trump and joe biden instead of focusing and fixating on what is the fbi or the doj going to do or what what is the the state government in georgia or or minnesota or california or louisiana or texas going to do what about what are you going to do what are you going to do no 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 not not i'm gonna go vote okay go go vote Vote, go vote for Donald Trump or go vote for Joe Biden, a man who was there for 40 years and the problem got worse. Go, go, go do that. But what else are you going to do? Do you have money? Give money. Do you have time? Give time. Do you have sweat? Give sweat. Do you have prayer? Give prayer. What do you have that you're going to do? And see, not Washington. Not Washington. Washington's not going to fix this. Washington does not fix these things. You had Rodney King. Washington did not fix it. You had Michael Brown. Washington did not fix it. You, you, you had, or um, Orlando, what's his name, uh, Castile for in where uh, was Wisconsin, or was that Minnesota as well? He got killed. The Washington didn't fix that. You you had the first black president of the United States. He didn't fix it. You've got Donald Trump. He's not going to fix it. Joe Biden's not going to fix it. What are you going to do to fix it? Your, your, your vote, go vote, go vote, go for, vote for your political leaders. But what are you going to do? See, the answer is not on you fixating on Washington, D.C., and the not, answer is not on you opining on social media. The answer is not on you putting a black square up on your social media and waving flag around and say, woo I did something good for me, and then walking away from it and say, oh, I did something. See, this is the problem with reparations. You give reparations, and a bunch of the white liberals who think you should give reparations would then say, oh, hands clean, I gave money, I'm done. That's what they do. And the problem doesn't actually get better. What are you going to do to make the situation better? And the answer I would submit to you is, as a very wise man several thousand years ago wrote, seek the welfare of the city in which you live, and there you'll find your welfare. If you live in Atlanta, what are you going to do to make Atlanta better? If you live in Bainbridge, what are you going to do to make Bainbridge better? If you live in Des Moines, what are you gonna do to make Des Moines better? If you live in Baton Rouge, what are you gonna do to make Baton Rouge better? You live in Orlando, what are you gonna do to make Orlando better? Do you know where your local food bank is? Do you know where your local soup kitchen is? Do you know which churches in your community offer help for the homeless and the weary? Do you know where the battered women's clinic is? Do you know where the homeless go to sleep at night in your city? Do you know where the refuges are for the abused in your city? Do you know where you can get your hands dirty, helping souls in your city? Do you know? And if you if that's too far out of your comfort zone to go do that, can you write a check to them? If you can't write a check to them because you don't have the money in these economic times, can you pray for them? Can you, through word of mouth on social media, instead of putting up a black check, uh, instead of putting up a black box, say, "Hey, here's a local nonprofit in my community that needs your help." What are you going to do? Stop telling me you're going to go vote. Voting's not going to change this. Stop stop going on social media and putting up black squares and saying, I've done my part. I'm listening. I'm listening. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to listen. Okay, listen. But then what are you going to do once you've listened? After what you've heard, what are you going to do? Voting for Joe Biden, a man who helped write the laws that people are now agitating against, it's not going to fix the problem. Voting for Donald Trump, you don't think it's going to fix the problem. Obsessing with what Washington is going to do, it's not going to fix the problem. Obsessing with what the state government in your state is going to do is not going to fix the problem. You're going to fix the problem. If the problem's going to be fixed, it's going to be you fixing the problem. It's going to be you engaging. It's going to be you finding someone to help. It's going to be you getting people to come to church with you, getting getting money to the local shelter in your community. Get, getting food and clothes and, and uh, recycled goods uh, from, from your family, your hand-me-downs, get, getting them out so kids who are starving and needy so that they can they can find food and they can find shelter, they can find clothing. Your money is going to work. Your, your, your hand-me-downs can work. Your prayer can work. Your sweat equity can work. Your money can work. Your checkbook can work. Your vote it's not really going to work to fix these problems. That's just the reality of it. Everyone wants to say, oh, you know, it's the greatest act of our democracy is to go vote. Yeah. Yeah. The greatest act of a democratic act can be to go vote. But this isn't about democracy. This is about humanity. And you having a human touch in your community is going to do way more to improve the situation in your community. Washington's not going to fix this. Atlanta's not going to fix this unless you live in Atlanta. You're going to fix your community, and then your community can help. If you're just putting up virtue signals on social media, eh, you really haven't done anything. And basically every ribbon across is just not military ribbons. Like there was the dollar bill folder, there was the age ribbon, there was the rainbow ribbon, uh, the light blue ribbon, the purple ribbon, all, all the ribbons. <laughs> It's like, and the Hollywood celebrities back in the day, remember there used to be the age ribbon. Now, always, every award show, there was always an age ribbon. It became part of the uniform. Like a politician wears an American flag on their lapel. If you were at a Hollywood award show, you had to wear the ribbon. The ribbon back in Hollywood—you go to the Oscars, you go to the Emmys, you'd go to wherever. You would always see the red ribbon for AIDS awareness, and and then occasionally you'd see the rainbow ribbon for for uh, the the Alphabet Gang right. Uh, occasionally now you still see what well, there's a light blue ribbon I think is for prostate cancer. There's the pink ribbon for breast cancer awareness. All all the ribbons. I I want to know who came up with the ribbons. But that's what you would do in Hollywood, and, and to some degree, that that mentality is still there. You you put on the ribbon, and you're gonna you're gonna use your celebrity to raise. Where you're not gonna do jack, but you're gonna put on a ribbon. It's part of the uniform. Put on a if you're a politician, you put a a state flag or the American flag on your lapel. You get attacked if you don't in some play- quarters. Remember, Barack Obama used to get attacked. He, he wasn't he wasn't sticking a needle through his expensive suit and tearing it up by putting an American flag pin on. He must not be a patriot. George W. Bush one time ran afoul of it as well. He he didn't have his his lapel pin. You gotta have your lapel pin. And if you're a politician, you gotta have your red ribbon. If you're in Hollywood, you gotta have your black square. If you're on social media, or you don't care. The, the number of people who really believe that they will raise social awareness just by putting a ribbon on. Uh, no, you, you raise social awareness by getting your hands dirty. You know, listen, there, there are plenty of people. I mean, take, for example, take George Clooney. Take George Clooney. George Clooney makes those silly uh, ads for Nespresso. We had a Nespresso machine for a while. My wife finally replaced it for Keurig. Uh, it's not bad, but uh, in in the, the coffee, eh. Um, but in Japan and elsewhere, George Clooney makes those commercials for Nespresso. He actually drinks Nespresso at home. I have it on good authority that, that he actually serves people Nespresso at his house. But George Clooney, he does those ads. He does other ads around the world. He's got the, the, the tequila company. He sold it for a billion dollars. George Clooney used that money, whether you like the man or not, George Clooney used the money from his advertisements and bought a satellite and launched it into space and had it put into geostationary orbit above Sudan to spy on the warlords to see what they were doing in the refugee crisis in Sudan. That makes a difference. Putting some silly ribbon on your lapel does not make a difference. That Made a difference. There are plenty of other celebrities out there who quietly, behind the scenes, do all sorts of work. It's like you know, I- I'm maybe I'm in too cynical a mood. Yeah, I, I have completed an orbit around the sun. As of ten twenty-two a.m., I will have completed my orbit around the sun for forty-four hours. Begin the forty-fifth orbit at ten twenty-two. But it's like the people who think, "Hey, I'm going to do 20 push-ups and raise awareness about suicide or, or what's happening with veterans." I'm I'm going to do I'm going to do push-ups. Now, occasionally, you'll get a celebrity who will do something like that and will build awareness and, and will will cause cause real change. We'll get people talking about it. Hey, did you see what so and so famous celebrity did? And people will start. To, but most of the time, it doesn't happen that way. Look at all the celebrities who virtue-signaled in in their stupid videos about going out to vote and helping Hillary Clinton. Did that do them any good? No, it didn't. Oh, but it was the Russians. No, it wasn't. It was Hillary Clinton was a terrible candidate, and they should have known better. But you're dancing around virtue-signaling stuff. It's probably not going to do any good. If you really want to do good, you go get involved somewhere. Don't put a ribbon on your chest. Uh, Stroke a check or or actually go out and, and... get sweaty and help and get your hands dirty in in the community. But please, otherwise, just stop lecturing all of us, please. Hello there. It felt good to get all on that soapbox, kind of, sort of, needed to be said. Let's move on, shall we? Because I I have an important question. And uh, some of you may, so the phone number here, if you want to call in, is 877-973-7425. Some of you may have an answer to this. I don't know. I, I've, I've tried to find it. I can't find references to it. Whatever happened to the kids in cages? Anybody got an idea? Whatever happened to the kids in cages? Remember, we were told that the United States was running concentration camps at the southern border. Last I checked, the kids are still there. Last I checked, there are still children in these federal concentration camps, as the left would call them. They're they're detention holding facilities. Making sure the kids were not being smuggled across by kidnappers or anything like that for human trafficking purposes and the like. Uh, They're they're still there. There there are still children there. Why aren't we hearing about the kids in cages anymore? Was it all? I bet it was. (gasps) Shocking. Was it not? It, it just, it's just—it's shocking. I mean, they—they would—they would actually politicize kids in cages and not actually. You mean Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and the like? They would turn kids in cages into a political opportunity in 2018 and then win the election and forget all about those kids? You're kidding me. I bet in three months they won't be caring too much about the Black Lives Matters anymore. Either they'll move on to some other outrage because the nation will have gotten tired of talking about it, won't they? I mean, that's just the reality. The, the Democrats, they found this opportunity. They'll weaponize it and then they'll move on when the polling shifts. When there's been too much damage, too much looting, they'll, they'll move on to something else. They've moved on from the kids in cages. So they moved on from the kids in cages. What else have they moved on from lockdown? So this is very bizarre. So Bill de Blasio, Bill de Blasio said that that he had the right and, and, and the duty to allow people to protest because of 400 years of his, his systematic racism in this country. But Jews can't go to prayer because I guess they haven't been persecuted at any time. It's bizarre. In California, uh, you can go protest. And frankly, the police probably are going to stop you if you smash up a business. But by God, if you want to play beach volleyball, you're going to jail. Jail. In uh, Virginia, in Washington, D.C., you can riot in the streets, but you better not go to church. So uh, lockdowns, lockdowns are out the window unless you want to go hang out with Jesus. You you want to go hang out on the street and and burn the Gucci store, well then you go for it, but don't you go try to get any Jesus and you're you'll go to jail. So the the conversations about kids in cages is gone the conversations about sheltering in place has gone. Although I, I I do see now that the media has has realized that the riots are violent and people are turning on them, the media is like, oh, we got to get back to sheltering in place now. We're going to spread the virus. We're going to be a lockdown over the summer. And now they're trotting out all the scare stories. For example, uh, Tony Fauci today says he doesn't know how long a vaccine will keep you immune. The World Health Organization has come out and said, contrary to what the people in Italy are claiming, we're not seeing the virus dying down. And there's a new report in the Atlanta Journal this morning that the CDC Helpfully tells us that no, actually Warm weather isn't going to slow the spread of the virus You better go back to staying in place Now that you've rioted Got the rioting out of your system Go home now You don't have a job anyway Because they won't let you go back to work And some of you destroyed the businesses So let's go home now But isn't it funny how that that didn't get talked about? Oh, what about mail-in balloting? Oh, I mean, just last week That was the hot ticket item Mail-in balloting Why is the president opposed to mail-in balloting? Last week, every single day, we heard mail-in balloting. Why, why can't we do the mail-in balloting? The president should allow mail-in balloting. Absentee balloting is mail-in balloting. Why can't we do it? <gasps> Break in on that. Nope, not going to talk about that this week. Nope, mail-in balloting, no longer a topic. Sheltered in place, no longer a concern. Children in cages in American concentration camps, who knew? No one's talking about that. It's all the protests, all the riots. And it's peaceful, you know, uh, when, when you're destroying property, it's not bad. You know, the, the the idiot who got the Pulitzer for the New York Times 1619 Project, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who says the most ridiculous counterfactual things that have no historic basis, like, for example, she said the other day that uh, the, the right to keep and bear arms of the Second Amendment was a product of racism and, and uh, arming Southern slave owners against their slaves. It's actually historically, that is factually not true factually not true she just makes this stuff up and they'll say oh she's speaking truth to power no she's full of garbage The right to keep and bear arms appears in the English Bill of Rights of 1688 following the, 1689 following the Glorious Revolution of 1688, where our founders were the grandchildren of the men who fought the Glorious Revolution and believed they were Englishmen entitled to the English Bill of Rights. And as a result, they decided that they had the right to keep and bear arms against the government. And so they copied the English Bill of Rights and put it into the American Bill of Rights because again, they were the grandchildren of the men who had fought the Glorious Revolution and they didn't consider themselves Americans. They considered themselves Englishmen. And that was the whole purpose of the American Revolution, not to get something new, but to get something very old. Their Magna Carta and English Bill of Rights rights restored to them. If you read the writings, not of the founding fathers, but of the men who fought the war and the women who sewed the flags and the uniforms and polished the weaponry, you would find out all of them actually thought they were Englishmen trying to get their rights. And among those rights were the rights to keep and bear arms against the monarchy. All you have to do is crack open a basic history book, but apparently she's decided to write a new history book that doesn't have any history in it. You know, if you start telling lies about stuff, soon the lies become truth. And you see the New York Times is doing that. Well, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones has gone on and, and said that, and she's really outraged that people are using her words against her. Here's what she said.
1: We, we need to be really careful with our language. Um yes it is disturbing to see property being destroyed it is disturbing to see uh, people taking property from stores but these are things and violence is when an agent of the state kneels on a man's neck until all of the life is leached out of his body destroying property which can be replaced is not violence and to put those things uh, to use the exact same language to describe those two things I think really um, it's not it's not moral to do that so yes I, I think any reasonable per- excuse me, any reasonable person would say, we shouldn't be destroying other people's property. But these are not reasonable times. These are people who have protested against police violence again and again and again, year after year after year. And still we can have videos of law enforcement with witnesses nonchalantly taking the life of of a man uh, for the alleged crime of passing a fake $20 bill. So when we have people who say that uh, people should respect the law, they're not respecting the law because the law is not respecting them. You can't say that, that regular citizens should play by all of the rules when agents of the state, clearly or not.
0: She makes a point there at the end that's fair. When, when the state's not playing by the rules, why do you have to play by the rules? That, that's a fair point. But it's not violence to destroy someone's property. It's only violence to take someone's life. No, no, I assure you it's violent when someone's throwing bricks through your window and setting your business on fire, there's violence. This is one of the bizarre aspects of the modern left. This is going to get me in trouble. I realize this is going to get me in trouble. At least it did in the past. But I still think it's a fair point. When the Islamic radicals went into Charlie Hebdo in Paris and they killed all of the writers and the artists who were there that they slaughtered the people who were there. They did so because they were outraged that the writers mocked Muhammad by drawing him and not just drawing him, but, but poking fun at him. And for all the, the free speech advocates in the world out there uh, who, who wanted to stand up to it, that, that drove enough fear. You don't really see people drawing cartoons, mocking Muhammad anymore. Do you? Their violence did work. Their violence was meant to destroy to take someone's life, to take it, to kill them. But there is a strain of secular radical that exists in the West who does not take someone's life. They just destroy their life. So the the, the victim still lives, does not die. But their life is ruined, their life is over, their livelihood is gone, that's not as violent, but it is still violence. When you destroy someone's small business, particularly at a time where we're in an economic lockdown, where you're stuck in your home, you can't go back to work, your business is struggling, you've had to take out the payroll protection program because your business uh, is, is struggling, you're out of work, your employees are out of work, you can't open your business, and then someone comes in, you're teetering on the edge, and they burn your business down, so now you can't even reopen? All the money you had saved, now that money's got to go to rebuilding, maybe you have insurance, maybe your property and casualty insurance company won't fight you, But it's still violence. It's not the end of a life, but it is the destruction of a livelihood. It is the destruction of a life. When activists went after Brandon Icke, he was the CEO of the Mozilla Foundation. He was Mormon. He had supported, uh, what, Proposition 8, uh, the traditional marriage uh, legislation, uh, constitutional amendment in California. The left drove him out of his career in technology. No one would work with him because he, as a person of faith, supported that legislation and had given money to help the cause. There was a woman, also a Mormon, who worked in a diner in Los Angeles and protesters came into the restaurant and refused to leave until she was fired. Her life wasn't taken from her, but her livelihood was destroyed. There is violence in that too. There is violence in taking the person's property and destroying it. There is a video that circulated. And I, I do have to admit, I laughed. Uh, it was a bunch of white bros who were. Uh, it looks like they were they were um, uh, playing uh, beer pong. Uh, they had, had uh, solo cups uh, spread out across a ping pong table. And, uh, they, they were there they, as the marchers were walking by in Washington, DC, they were holding up thumbs up and knocking on the windows and, and cheering on the protesters. And the protesters started throwing bricks in the windows, smash the window. And the boys started cussing and, and yelling, so we're on your side, we're on your side. And another brick smashed through the window. And they were horrified and they were screaming. There was profanity. I, I found the same, I found it somewhat hilarious and ironic, uh, funny in the irony that the, these guys believe that they were marching or cheering on the side of those who were actually marching to the streets, and they got the bricks thrown through their window. That Was that not violence? It wasn't a death, but can we distinguish between a death and destruction of property? They're both violent. There's both a level of violence, but to say that the one is violence and the other isn't is nonsense. And by the way, she's out today Defenders, Oh, I I can't believe people would say I I thought she said it. We're we're quoting her own words. I can see, let's be charitable here. And let's suggest that uh, what she meant is that, and I've seen several people say this, um, there are people who say things like, uh, the uh, taking of George Floyd's life was tragic and wrong, but we have to stop the destruction of people's property and that maybe we should say the the destruction of people's property is wrong, but we have to stop the killing of people like George Floyd. Maybe that's what she meant. And I I, I think there's merit to the argument. But I also think that uh, some people who say that they're not meaning to diminish the one and play up the other—they're not meaning to diminish George Floyd's life and play up the the property. They're they're what they're pointing to is that he died, and now people are destroying property. Do, do, is property going to keep being destroyed until what George Floyd is resurrected? I, I don't know when Jesus is coming back to make that happen. But also the narrative shifting now as as, as the protesters turn violent. Remember, first, it wasn't Antifa. It was white supremacists. And now we know it's not white supremacists. And so now it's not violence. It's no longer It's still the same act that was violent when they thought it was white supremacists. But now it's not white supremacists. So now it's not violent. The kids aren't in cages anymore, even though they are. That, that's not important anymore. The violence is no longer important. Mail-in balloting is no longer important. We can have crowds again as long as you're not going to church. Sheltering in place is no longer important as long as you're protesting. Let's just keep revising and revising and revising and extending and trying to build outrage. The entire thing is about building outrage. It really is just hypocrisy, except it's the left. Is there really hypocrisy in these activist arguments there? It's just they're trying to find the thing that moves the needle to amplify the rage. It's like you see the reporters out there right now who are saying, for example, there was a guy the other night, a a white guy, won't be charged with killing a black protester. No, actually, he didn't. What was happening is the, the, the protester was trying to destroy the man's business, and he shot and killed the protester, so he won't be charged. But why actually tell the truth when you can get rage clicks in the media these days? A whole lot of people, they don't just want rage clicks, they want rage votes. And here's the problem is they may take back power. You know, there are a lot of Republicans, we'll get into this, a lot of Republicans seem increasingly resigned to the fact that the president may not win re-election. And Joe Biden gets in, and what happens, absolutely nothing. Uh, Wait a second, I just saw this. Where did this go? You know, freaking Twitter, it keeps updating and pushing stuff down the screen. Uh, where is it? Where is it? Oh, come on. Yes. We just couldn't not do anything. We could not do it. Immune compromised grandparents leave quarantine to join protests. Marianne, 67, and Louis, 71, uh, DeRoad, are both immune compromised and were supposed to be quarantined. They joined a crowd of at least a 1,000 people north of Lafayette Square to protest instead. It was righteous, people. It was righteous protesting. Um, if you did this, you would be shamed by the media. If, if you went out there and, and stood up for the president, you would be shamed by the media. You're supposed to be quarantined. But no, the cause was righteous going out to protest. So we will ignore the fact that you went out there. You know, it, it is actually kind of interesting how the media is, is flipping back. As So polling has come out, uh, and we'll talk about the polling in the next hour, but some polling has come out that 58% of Americans are okay with using the military to crush the protest, not the riots. The pro. It was very interesting how it was worded. Uh, are you okay with the military being used to stop the riot, uh, stop the protesting? And fifty-eight percent of Americans said yes. Imagine what it would have been if he said stop the rioting. Would have been over sixty percent. And in fact, a majority. This is this is a key, significant indicator here. A majority of evangelicals and a majority of men, key constituencies for the president, are upset with the president's handling of the situation. And a significant portion of them are upset with him because he's not doing enough to stop it, according to them. He needs to to send the military in, according to them. And so notice now that the media tried on Saturday when the, the governor of Minnesota and the mayor of Minneapolis came out and said it was white nationalists who were doing all the protest, all, all the violence. Uh, the media was like, Oh, this is terrible. This is terrible. We got to do something. But now Antifa is out in the open. they they're wearing their black garb and their Antifa masks and the like. And suddenly the violence is righteous. It's righteous. It's remember, it's not actually violence because you've got property and casualty insurance and that'll take care of it. It's amazing how they turned on a dime. I mean, literally on Saturday, there was this violent destruction by white supremacists needed to stop. And then all of a sudden they realize it actually is far left groups like Antifa. Oh, this isn't really violence. I mean, you can rebuild. It's funny how that works. Absolutely. I, it, just, it never ceases to amaze me how quickly members of the press will turn on a dime to serve the left and the Democratic Party. And frankly, they overshadow so many of the good reporters out there. There are still good reporters out there. Uh, but my goodness, yeah, uh, you, you know, it, real quick here, it is worth also noting that David Dorn is is dead, uh, and none of you knew who he was until he died. Uh, what was it, St. Louis, Missouri? He was a police chief, and he was gunned down protecting a business, trying to stop a uh, trying to stop theft, and he his death was actually streamed on Facebook Live. People are circulating the video, I'm trying to try trying to not look at it. But it's just sad to sad to see stuff like that. The president, of course, is has tweeted out his support for the man and, and honor for the family. And of course, now the left is going, going just nasty over that. That apparently this uh, dead African American police chief was was part of white supremacy. Now, according to some on media, since the president said something nice about him, oh, ah, yeah, there's there's just no winning. They just want the you know it, it, this is this is why I really do think, like I said yesterday, if the president's message is "I'll keep you safe and put you back to work," I think the president wins in November. There are a lot of Republicans right now behind the scenes, and I I talk to them on a regular basis. And they are concerned that this is not like 2016 because the president is the incumbent, and the chaos is happening on his watch. And just as there's, if there's a good economy, the president gets the gets support, and if there's a bad economy, he gets the blame. If there's riots in the streets, the president gets the blame. That uh, this isn't really like Nixon in '68 because Nixon was a challenger, not an incumbent. Uh, the chaos was happening on Lyndon Johnson's watch. That there's fundamental differences there, and no one's going to believe it until it's too late. There's concern there, but I gotta tell you, I don't know how this plays out, and I, I, I want to talk to you about that a little bit when we come back. I just don't know what's gonna happen. Yeah, a friend of mine called me this morning and, and wished me I, I is 45 now, middle age, I guess. Shut up, Philip. <laughs> all right, uh, you can call in if you want 97 Eric eight seven seven nine seven three seven four two five. I gotta, I, I'm totally deviating from everything I wanted to talk about. We'll we'll get to all that other stuff. We'll make it jam packed, uh, including the governor's press conference yesterday. I've got to, uh, I, I I gotta, I gotta read you this though. This this if you want to, if you want to discredit. Uh, discussions about uh, latent racism in the country. If you want to to undermine all of the work towards racial reconciliation, I would submit to you, you could do no better than this. This is just bizarre. Uh, This is from uh, White Supremacy Culture, from Dismantling Racism, a workbook for social change groups. Uh, This was published in 2001. And I see it circulating again today, and and it's being circulated not ironically. It's being circulated as legitimate. And we should walk through this. This is a list of characteristics of white supremacy culture which shows up in our organizations. Culture is powerful precisely because it is so present and at the same time so very difficult to name or identify. The characteristics listed below are damaging because they are used as norms and standards without being proactively named or chosen by the group. They are damaging because they promote white supremacy thinking. They are damaging both to people of color and to white people. Organizations that are people of color, led by led or a majority people of color, can also demonstrate many dam- damaging characteristics of white supremacy culture. Let, let me let me read that sentence to you again. One, because I botched it, and two, because you need to appreciate it. Organizations that are people of color led or a majority people of color can also demonstrate many damaging characteristics of white supremacy culture. So you got that? You you can be uh, a a, a black person or Hispanic person. They can run an organization. Or that organization can be majority-minority and still demonstrate damaging characteristics of white supremacy culture. What are the characteristics of white supremacy culture? Number one this 11, 12, 13, 13 of them here. 13 of them. Now they, they they include this note at the bottom. these are these are academic grievance mongers. And they include this helpful note. One of the purposes of listing characteristics of white supremacy culture is to point out how organizations which unconsciously use these characteristics as their norms and standards make it difficult, if not impossible, to open the door to other cultural norms and standards as a result. Many of our organizations, while saying we want to be multicultural, really only allow other people and cultures to come in if they adapt or conform to already existing cultural norms. Being able to identify and name the cultural norms and standards you want is a first step in making room for a truly multicultural organization. Now, this is just, just take that phrase right there. Understand that. What these academics are doing is they're preparing a list that they say are 13 of the chief white supremacy characteristics of an organization. And that one of the hallmarks of a white supremacy organization is that when you, someone who is not white, comes into this and you are forced to conform to these values, you're being conformed to white supremacy. Many organizations, while saying we want to be multicultural, really only allow other people and cultures to come in if they adapt and conform to already existing cultural norms. By the way, that happens on every country on the planet. It's not just the United States. You come into a country or a company, and you're expected to conform to that company's values. You know, when you go to Apple, you, you take a, a school on, on Apple's values. You conform to Apple's values. Values come up with a white guy. Shh. So what are the values? What are the You'll be interested to learn. Did you know that perfectionism is a is a white value is is a white supremacy value. Perfectionism, little appreciation expressed among people for the work that others are doing. Appreciation that is expressed usually directed to those who get most of the credit anyway perfectionism is is more common is to point out either how the person or work is inadequate or even more common to talk to others about the inadequacies of the person or their work without ever talking directly to them. Mistakes are seen as personal. They reflect badly on the person, making them as opposed to being seen for what they are mistakes, why they are mistakes. Making a mistake is confused with being a mistake. Doing wrong with being wrong. Here's an antidote. Develop a culture of appreciation where the organization takes time to make sure that people's work and efforts are appreciated. Develop a learning organization where it is expected that everyone will make mistakes and that mistakes offer opportunities for learning. Create an environment where people can recognize that mistakes sometimes lead to positive results. Wait, wait. Create an environment where people can recognize that mistakes sometimes lead to positive results. Really? Separate the person from the mistake? Really? I mean, this is kind of like a no-brainer thing here. This isn't white supremacy. This is running an effective business. A sense of urgency is also a symptom of white supremacy in an organization. A continued sense of urgency that makes it difficult to take time to be inclusive, encouraging democratic and/or thoughtful decision making, to think long term, to consider consequences. That well, white supremacy and in in, in, in the defensiveness is white supremacy. The organizational structure is set up, and much energy spent trying to prevent abuse and protect power as it exists, rather than to facilitate the best out of each person, or to clarify who has power and how they are expected to use it. What? quantity over quality is white supremacy. All resources of the organization are directed toward producing measurable goals. That's a sign of white supremacy. Things that can be measured are more highly valued than things that cannot. For example, numbers of people attending a meeting, newsletter circulation, money spent, and value are more, more than quality of relationships, democratic decision-making, and ability to constructively deal with conflict. That That's white supremacy. If you actually want metrics in your organization to make sure you're hitting benchmarks, that is white supremacy to have that standard. Oh my goodness. Worship of the written word is white supremacy. If your organization believes it's got to be in a memo or it didn't happen, that's white supremacy, people. The organization does not take into account or value other ways in which information gets shared. The belief there is one right way to do things. And once people are introduced to the right way, they will see the light and adopt it. That is white supremacy paternalism is white supremacy. Decision making is clear to those with power and unclear to those without it. Those with power think they are capable of making decisions for and In the interests of those without power, that's white supremacy, or it could be upper management is upper management. I guess upper management is white supremacy. Even if it's a, even if it's a business where the, the upper managers aren't white, I guess that's white supremacy. According to these people, either or thinking is white supremacy. Things are either or, good, bad, right, wrong, with us or against us. That's white supremacy. Closely linked to perfectionism in making it difficult to learn from mistakes or accommodate conflict. No sense that things can be both and. Results in trying to simplify complex things. For example, believing that poverty is simply a lack of education. Power hoarding is white supremacy. Little if any value around sharing power. Power is seen as limited, only so much to go around. Fear of open conflict is white supremacy. People in power are scared of conflict and try to ignore it or run from it. Equating the raising of difficult issues with being impolite, rude, or out of line, that's apparently white supremacy individualism that is white supremacy people little experience or comfort working as part of a team people in organizations believe they're responsible for solving problems alone accountability if any goes up and down not sideways to peers to or to others in organizations it leads to isolation little or no ability to delegate work to others individualism is white supremacy folks if you can't delegate your job to someone else And that person can't delegate your delegation to them, to someone else. Well, that's white supremacy. Progress is bigger and more. Observed in systems of accountability in ways we determine success. Objectivity is white supremacy. The belief that there is such a thing as being objective is white supremacist thinking. The belief that emotions are inherently destructive, irrational and should not play a role in decision making or group process, that is white supremacy. Invalidating people who show emotion is white supremacy. Requiring people to think in a linear fashion and ignore or invalidate those who think in other ways is white supremacy. And the right to comfort is white supremacy. Equating individual acts of unfairness against white people with systematic racism, which daily targets people of color. That's that's white supremacy. Scapegoating those who cause discomfort, that's white supremacy. Y'all, if I wanted to be an academic who wanted to undermine the entire claims about racism out there, I would be someone who said, who treated this seriously. The idea that effective tried and true global business management techniques are white supremacy. The 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 idea that a company would want to put something in writing and document it, that's white supremacy. The idea that uh, the people in charge get to make the decisions is white supremacy. I mean, notice what this actually is. This this actually isn't about it. And this is why so many people uh, have a hard time taking some of the, the grievances related to race in this country seriously is because so many of the academics who talk about it are actually not just progressive, but they're on the way far communist left. So notice in this that that a corporation that has an hierarchy where the senior managers make decisions and the lower level managers, the junior managers or the employees have to carry them out, that's bad. That's apparently white supremacy. Instead, the president of the company, the executive vice president of the company, the junior deputy assistant manager and mop pusher should all get in a room together and be equals and decide the chart the course of the future for the company. The founder of the company, if he wants to preside over the company and make a decision, by God, that's white supremacy. Makes you wonder: Is is Oprah a white supremacist if she um, does some of these things in her business? Like she has final say in her business. It, it's the Oprah brand, and she sits down and she decides that everybody else gets an equal say in the direction of her brand. For her, is, is that white? According to this, it would be. This is this is this is how you take this stuff and make it not serious. Yeah. It, it, so here's the thing. Let's say there are legitimate grievances. Underneath all of this, there are, in in fact, there are legitimate grievances. If you really believe that, well, we have to talk differently, we have to think differently, you got to get other people to see it and not just start demanding it of them because they want to know why. Is is it white supremacy to question things? Because according to this, it's not. But if you questioned it and you're white, I suspect they would say it is. There are real problems. It's my problem with this whole idea of white privilege. The the idea that somehow I, I busted my butt to get where I am, but by God, it it's it's it it it's bad because I had some privilege someone else didn't. There are other people out there who had more privilege than me. The idea of treating me as part of a collective mass as opposed to an individual and yet see here we, we have in this document uh, of what is white supremacy culture and business organizations valuing the individuals and input of individuals is bad unless those individuals get together in a collective group and decide things themselves. This isn't about th- this document and a lot of the thinking we're hearing out there about race and racism. It's not really about that. It's about upending the spirit and culture of individualism in America. And I'm telling you that there is a problem in this country. You don't have to You don't have to be involved in a city or in, involved in a, a group of, of agitators or, or uh, you don't have to go work in certain parts of the country to see it. You should just be able to know it. We should need a videotape to show us that there is something going on in this country that probably isn't good. Well, it's not even probably. It's not good. You shouldn't need a video to get outraged by Ahmed Aubrey, and you shouldn't need a video to get outraged by what happened to George Floyd. But the collective isn't going to solve it. The individual is going to solve it. But yet now we're told here that individualism is white supremacy. Well, the government and the collective and the mob aren't going to solve these problems. You and I are going to solve these problems individually. And this stuff just helps discredit anyone from wanting to take any of this stuff seriously. Uh, Man, I got to tell you... um, I have uh, traded uh, emails with Steve King over the years. We've had very pleasant encounters. And man, in the last few years, I I just, the sight of him, I never knew that it existed. And and several friends of mine who've known him for a while said, yeah, actually for a long time, he has kind of said some of the outlandish things he said. and, and, And I just, I found the whole thing bizarre. Uh, But he is, he is beaten in Iowa. I'll tell you the thing that's not getting coverage though, that is getting coverage in the national press that Steve King went down to defeat. What is not getting national press is, did you see what happened in Pennsylvania? They had their presidential primary last night and Joe Biden, of course, swept it. Joe Biden swept all of the democratic states having primaries. Donald Trump got more votes in a Republican primary where there were no other races than Joe Biden got. Donald Trump got 600 some odd thousand votes in the Republican primary and Joe Biden only got 400,000 votes in the Democratic primary. I I don't know how much we can read into that, but I think we can read some into that. Uh, You know, this is I want to spend a little more time on this when we come back, but I don't know what's going to happen here. Normally, I have a sense of stuff. You know, in 2016, I, I really did think Trump was going to lose. And a lot of people did. Uh, but Hillary Clinton turned out to be a, a very incompetent candidate and so many people hated her who wanted to vote for Trump there is a growing sense among some Republicans, even Republicans who thought Donald Trump would win in 2016, there, there's a growing sense among a number of them that he seems almost resigned to defeat now. You know that QAnon group, uh, it's the conspiracy theorist people, they're starting to lose a lot of people because they built up these conspiracies that people bought into. There's going to be mass arrests and and the government was going to round people up. And I know, so I follow a couple of these groups. I, I I created dummy accounts to kind of follow them just to keep up with them because I kept hearing people talk about QAnon. Q and cue this and cue that. And what do you think of Q And I had no idea. It's a conspiracy theory. It's got to be nuts, right? Except I know some reasonable people who follow it and, and treat it seriously, or at least they did. Some of them starting to give up on it. Some of them still really, really do. I, in fact, one friend of mine, I guess he was a friend. he He's gotten very angry with me for not buying into this whole Q nonsense. But I noticed several of the accounts yesterday started talking about what a mission accomplished, Mr. President, job well done. Your, your whole purpose was to stop the advance of five political families in America. And apparently, it was the Bushes, the Obamas, the Clintons, and and I, I don't know who the other two were, but not Joe Biden. Um, rich families, I guess. I, I I don't know. But the president, his job was to stop them, and he has stopped them. Mission accomplished. Thank you, Mr. President. That, and that, that was a message. And it sounds almost like some of these people are concluding that the president may lose in November now. there are Republican strategists who are convinced that if the president doesn't do something very soon, that he will. And all of them say the, the same thing, that relax, we got time. And they're right, by the way. They are right. There is time. There There's plenty of time. There's also a frustration among some of these Republican strategists that because in 2016, so many people said the president was going to lose and he didn't, that no one will believe the warning signs this time. And and this even among strategists who were pretty sure the president could beat Hillary Clinton because so many people hated her compared to Donald Trump. Uh, they are now thinking, wait a second, there are some warning signs out there. And those warning signs have everything to do, ironically, with the polling on who do you hate the most and who are you going to vote for? And, and Donald Trump won that handily in 2016. When people hated both of the candidates equally, who were they going to vote for? They were going to vote for Trump. Or when people hated both candidates, but they hated Hillary Clinton more, they were going to vote for Trump. And now it's for Biden against Trump because Trump is the is the great known. And that's part of the problem here. When you're an incumbent president, I think the American people would give you the lockdown. It's not your fault. Uh, there was a Chinese virus spreads around the world, causes all of this stuff. But then the rioting and, and the president doesn't seem to – he seems to make the situation worse. And that seems to be the read. A lot of people feel like he's made the situation worse. Some of his base, not all of his base, but some of his base is turning on him, but he only won by 70,000 votes in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Can he turn around? Yeah, he absolutely can. I, I, don't, I still think the thing that people are uh, freaked out about, the thing that has people aggravated, that those things, oh, we're not going to see on the ballot a reaction to this. There's going to be something else between now and the election that shapes people's conscience. Uh, will it be good for him or bad for him? Can he be prepared for it? That's going to be the question. Uh, how does he respond to what comes next? I think that's the make or break moment for the presidency. No reason to panic at this moment. The president doesn't just it doesn't have to use the Insurrection Act. There are other laws he can use, but overwhelmingly uh short of civil rights violations, it is the Insurrection Act by which the president can deploy military forces to assist states. Um, the president can also deploy military forces under very civil rights laws. If those States are, uh, violating the constitutional guarantee for a Republic, although it's, it's a little harder to do in those cases. Uh, now uh, maybe we'll get into that. Uh, there, there are a couple other, there, there's some other things here. I'm, and I'm kind of behind in the stuff. I just started talking this morning. Uh, unloaded. I, I'm allowed. It's my birthday. You can't stop me. Uh, the, the phone number is 87797 Eric, 8779737425. If you want to chime in, I, I do want to spend just a moment before I get into the other stuff. On this story, the last person to receive Civil War era pension dies. Irene Triplett collected $73.13 from the Department of Veterans Affairs, benefit for her father's military service in the civil war she was the last person alive receiving a pension for the civil war she died at 90 her father moses triplet started fighting in the war for the confederacy but defected to the north in 1863 the decision earned his daughter irene the product of a late in life marriage to a woman 50 years his junior a pension of 73 dollars and 13 cents a month from the department of veterans affairs miss triplet who suffered from mental disabilities qualified for federal financial support as a helpless adult child of a veteran. She died Sunday from complications following surgery for injuries from a fall, according to the Wilkesburg, North Carolina nursing home where she lived. The triplet family was the subject of a page one article in the Wall Street Journal in 2014. Private triplet enlisted in the 53rd North Carolina Infantry Regiment in 1862. He then transferred to the 26th North Carolina Infantry Regime early the following year, according to Confederate records. He fell ill as his regiment marched north towards Gettysburg. He remained behind in a Virginia military hospital. He ran away from the hospital Records show while his unit suffered devastating losses at Gettysburg. Of the 800 men in the 26th North Carolina, 734 were killed, wounded, or captured in the battle. Private Triplet missed. Now a deserter... He made his way to Tennessee, and in 1864, he enlisted in a Union regiment, the 3rd North Carolina Mounted Division. Known as Kirk's Raiders, the 3rd North Carolina carried out a campaign of sabotage against Confederate targets in eastern Tennessee and western North Carolina. The unit was named after Tennessee-born Commander Colonel George Washington Kirk. After the war... Former Kirk Raiders were despised in areas of the former Confederacy. Private Triplett, by then a civilian with a reputation for honoriness, kept pet rattlesnakes at his home near Elk Creek, North Carolina. He often sat on his front porch with a pistol on his lap. A lot of people were afraid of him, his grandson, Charlie Triplett, told the Journal. Private Triplett married Alita Hall in 1924. She was 34 when Irene was born in 1930, and he was 83. Such an age difference wasn't rare, especially later during the Great Depression, when Civil War veterans found themselves with both a pension and a growing need for care. Both mother and daughter suffered from mental disabilities. Irene Triplett recalled a tough childhood in the North Carolina mountains, beaten by teachers at school and parents at home. I didn't care for neither one of them to tell you the truth about it, she told the Wall Street Journal in 2014. I wanted to get away from both of them. I wanted to get me a house and crawl in it all by myself. Private Triplett died in 1938 at age 92, days after attending a reunion of Civil War veterans attended by President Franklin Roosevelt on the fields of Gettysburg. Ms. Triplett and her mother lived for years in the Wilkes County poorhouse. Irene later moved through a number of care homes, her costs covered by Medicaid and her tiny VA pension. She saw little of her relatives, but a pair of Civil War buffs visited her and sent her money to spend on Dr. Pepper and chewing tobacco, a habit she picked up in first grade. She's part of history, said Dennis St. Andrew, one of Irene's supporters and a past commander of the North Carolina Sons of Union veterans of the Civil War. You're talking to someone whose father was in the Civil War, which is mind-bending. You know, that was the Wall Street Journal, uh, Michael Phillips' writing. And as an aside here, I've pointed this out before. You know, the, the American Revolution of 1776 was... Only about uh, not even a full century f- away from the Glorious Revolution, and I mentioned this earlier in the day that that the you know the the men who fought in the American Revolution were within living memory in some cases of the Glorious Revolution. Their grandfathers, for certain, many of them had fought in the English Glorious Revolution. The Glorious Revolution is where James II fled, and William and Mary came over, and, and the English Parliament passed the a uh, Parliament Act. Uh, guarantee in the line of secession and parliamentary supremacy and passed an English Bill of Rights that among things ensured uh, in, in a trial by juries and uh, the right to keep and bear arms and certain uh, free speech laws and, and religious freedom laws, these sorts of things. And, and the English came to the colonies of North America. And believed they were still Englishmen, but their children and grandchildren were treated as second-class citizens as, uh, as non-Englishmen, not entitled to those sorts of things. In some cases, you would have governors general of the colonies taking direct monarchical rule over against local assemblies. And they resented it like hell. They believed they were English citizens entitled to the uh, Bill of Rights. And so the American Revolution was actually a conservative revolution. And then you get to the Civil War and there were those whose fathers or grandfathers had fought in the Revolutionary War. They, they, were, they were children of the Revolution. And then you get out of out of the Civil War, that's in the, the 1860s, and you get into, I mean, World War II, for example. You're less than 100 years removed from World War II. And we are less than 100 years removed from World War II. And yet we still, there are still people in this country, this is hard to believe, but there are people in this country today whose parents fought in the Civil War. Let me say that again. There are still people alive today. They're very, very old. There are only a handful of them left, but their parents, their father, not their mother, their father fought in the Civil War. One generation removed from the Civil War. We are two generations removed in some cases from the Civil War. I mean, think about that for just this mind blowing, you know, so I did a case here in Georgia. It was actually, uh, really the last civil case I did. It was over in Taylor County, uh, which reminds me, I need to go over to Barrow Automotive. Um, it it is, man, if you've never been to Barrow, I don't care where you are in Georgia. It's the best gun store in the country. Um, but it is, it's in Butler, uh, which is in Taylor County and the last case i ever did was in taylor county it was a civil case had a criminal case that that went a little bit longer but the civil case was a property dispute and it was a couple whose grand no great grandfather so they were one two three generations removed from the civil war their great grandfather had been a slave had become free got a job as a sharecropper raised his money and bought himself several hundred acres of land in Taylor County, and he died in 1905. And his case went into probate court, and well, I mean, you know the history of the South, we don't need to rehash it, but the family was deeply afraid in 1905, uh, all the way into the present, that if they allowed this case out of probate, that someone white would take this black family's property. So they left it tied up in probate for a hundred years, which is absurd. A hundred years, this family's property was tied up in court, and it just went on continuance after continuance and try to divide this up as the ears magnified and people would use the land. Uh, the, the, the family would use the land. Well, here came one of the heirs who was entitled to, it ultimately worked out to about a half acre to an acre of land. And he wanted the land to build a house. He was entitled to it. And so he wanted to close out probate, and a lot of the family did not wish to close out probate. And they hired a lawyer, and they fought it. And, and lucky for me, uh, to some degree, the lawyer knew absolutely nothing about probate law. Uh, and the judge was just astonished that there was a case that was still open that long. and uh, immediately set about uh, determining. We knew the number of errors. We'd done all the work. We'd advertised for it. And, uh, so they, we wound up winning the case and closing it and adjourning it. And the family had to divide up the property among the existing heirs. I think they wound up, you know, I left practice as They were winding up, but I think they drew lots for the land, but, but this particular couple had, a, had a tract of land they wanted and they were entitled to it. It was the most bizarre thing I'd ever encountered. It was the most bizarre thing that the probate judge had encountered. The probate judge had no idea. But the family had left it in probate for so long because they were afraid that that malicious people would take the land, uh, g- given what was happening in the country during the after with re- after Reconstruction and all, and into the Jim Crow era. That it was just it was a fascinating case. It, it was a moment of history, uh, and it's just hard to believe though that we still have stuff like that outstanding in this country. And we do. People forget about it, but we do. It's still there. Uh, along with the problems we have, there are just some neat stories out there to be told and some some great things out there in this country as well. I, I do sometimes think that there are people today who their entire job seems to be to point out all the bad and ignore all the good. And in particular, uh, to to stir the pot in such a way as to make people feed on their grievances. There are a lot of people who profit by the divisions in this country. There are, And on both sides, it's not just Democrats. Let's be honest here. It is across the board. There are people who they profit off of and benefit politically and otherwise from division in this country. And they want to ignore the good things happening in this country. They want to they say they want people to be left alone and they don't really want to leave them alone. You know, I just, listen, you know, the the it's like the whole drag queen story hour fight. I, I agree with my uh, a friend of mine who complains about this, that it is a sign of blight on our culture. Drag queen story hour, the, that, that people want to take their children to highly sexualized men who are dressed as women to read them stories as if it's no big deal. I, I personally have a problem with that. But I also have to part ways with my friends who think we need some sort of national movement to ban this because, one, you're not. Uh, it's not going to happen. And, two, uh, you know, I, I continue to believe that it, me and I'm making Georgia, if I don't want it, I, one, I don't have to go to it. And, and, two, my community doesn't have to do it if we don't want to. No one's forcing us to do it. Uh, but you know there are parts of Atlanta that that want to do it. There are San Francisco and Los Angeles that want to do it. That And, and it is part of – it is becoming almost a religious ritual among left-wing secular types that this is what we have to do. We don't go to church. We go to drag queen story hour and then go have an abortion. It's all part of the sacrament of, of left-wing secular religion. But I just think, you know, if, if – I, one, I don't have to go to it, and two – my community doesn't have to be a part of it, and yet there are some on the left who would demand that my community be a part of it and would peer pressure and boycott and, and, and agitate for it. No one wants to leave anyone else alone anymore. No one wants to focus on the good. Everyone wants to focus on the bad. Everyone wants to divide. As opposed to just leave me the hell alone. Leave my community alone. Let my community say that, you know what, overwhelmingly we as a community want this. Well, you know what, we're a democracy, majority rules. It's like, you know, it always annoys me like there's there's the one kid in school who insists that, no, no, we can't have a prayer. It offends me at graduation. It's one kid out of 500 who wants to screw everybody else. You don't have to live in that community. At some point, we got to respect each other's abilities to say, you know what, majority of people in this community want X, Y, and Z. That's what we're going to do. And the Supreme Court, by the way, I think fosters a lot of this division because the Supreme Court wants to be the most powerful branch of the government, even though it was put number three. You know, it's not three equal branches. Article one, Congress is first because the founders wanted Congress, the the people to be paramount to the chief executive and the chief executive to be paramount to the judges. And yet we've subverted it on its head. And now Article three seems to be the most powerful. And as long as there are these cultural divisions and people can't just leave well enough alone and have a community of, of common interest because the Supreme Court says, no, no, this one person in your community of a million people, this one person wants something, you got to give it to them. That just continues to keep us divided and keeps the judges powerful and keeps the agitators powerful. And the rest of us kind of burns everybody out. I, 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 I'm I texting back and forth with a uh, with pastor right now who... Um, he put up a he put up a tweet last night. I found it funny, and I retweeted it. I fell out laughing. My wife saw it and fell out laughing. As did my kid when I showed it to him. And uh, poor poor guy is he he's been lit on fire as a result of me retweeting him. And I feel so bad, but he actually he finds it funny. He's taking a good humor. So um, a, a Catholic minister, a Catholic priest who's a CNN religion commentator, he tweeted out a picture of the president holding up a Bible in front of St. John's Church in Washington. And he says, he asks, has the Bible ever been used in a more disingenuous and exploitive way? <laughs> so Corey Olivier, the, the Baptist pastor in New Orleans, replies, yes, which is why the Protestant Reformation happened. <laughs> Oh, it didn't go over it. I found it funny. <laughs> A lot of people did not. So now. Um, oh my goodness gracious. Okay. All right, all right, all right. Uh let let let's let's go to the phones, shall we? 877-97 Eric, 877 7425 Cliff calling from Atlanta. You're gonna be up first. Welcome.
2: All right, thanks. Sure. What's going on? Uh, oh, I'm, are we ready? Oh, yeah. Yep. You're, you're on. Okay. Um, for me, uh, I just wanted to get Eric's comment on this. I, I'm on the board of directors of an organization with a lot of people, and we have directors come and go, so we've got a good sampling of the community there. And to me, it is infuriating how people are ready to rush to judgment after just a few phrases, a sentence, they don't need corroborating evidence. They don't need a second opinion. They don't need to verify the facts. They are ready to jump to a vote. To me, I think this is indicative of what we are seeing in our communities right now, the dumbing down of America. People hear a clip from a media report or see a part of a video, and they are ready to rush to judgment immediately without getting corroborating evidence, a second opinion, fact-checking, or anything. This is the reason why these issues when they happen are so inflammatory is because someone will say something inflammatory and the public will just run with it. Yep. It's a mental laziness of not well, being willing to check the facts. And you know, it's
0: not just that I'm, I'm glad you said this because I, I've encountered this in meetings before as well. And, and I'm, I bet everyone has in the last few years where you all you say, so someone says something around the table, and someone else's preconceived biases interpret it in a negative way. And it wasn't meant in a negative way. Maybe it could have been better well well said, but but the person who's got the hang up Applies their biases and rage towards what you said when you didn't even mean it in the way they took it, and and no amount of apology works. And then you get the people in the in the public who nitpick. And and I mean, for example, uh, thank you for the call and call. Let, let, let me let you go there, and you can just listen to this. There, there were story after story over the last couple of days of instances of police violence, and, and NBC has done this. Several NBC has probably been the worst. For example, there was a transgender activist. Shot and killed by police in Pensacola, Florida. That was the tweet. What they left out of the tweet, you had to actually click through to see, is that the transgender advocate uh, was pointing a gun at the police and wouldn't disarm. Or just yesterday, the the white man in Colorado uh, kills black protester, will not be charged. Again, NBC. What they left out of this is that uh, the white man was protecting his business and the black protester was trying to bomb the business with Molotov cocktails and, and was was shot and killed. And so, of course, the business owner isn't going to be charged. Notice how the media has been playing that up. And it took the president tweeting about the, the former police chief who was, was shot and killed trying to protect a business for the media to really, really play up that story. The selectiveness of the media and the selective desire to play up outrage is just it's it's sad to see. Uh, and yet it's happening. It's more and more common in the United States to see stuff like that happening with the media. It's really unfortunate. Uh, really is. All right, when we come back, what's actually going to happen in the election season? And what is George W. Bush going to do? Why are people even bringing up George W. Bush? It's wishcasting. casting. I want to explain it when we come back. Hello and welcome. The third hour of the Eric Erickson show here. The phone number is... What is the phone number? Man, this is the second time today. 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425. I'm starting to get in that situation where all the radio shows I do are running together. Um, so now I want to spend a little bit of time on the great unknown. There's, there's some polling out that roughly 71% of the country is concerned about the economy. Here's the thing. I don't know how this plays out with the public. I really don't. There, there are a lot of people out there who, who believe, who say, who claim that at somehow or another, this is all going to ruin the president and, and it's going to be terrible. In fact, there's polling out today that shows Joe Biden nationally has an 11-point lead, which if you know anything about polling and the statistical sampling of how polling is done, sure, you can go with the polling is all wrong, uh, but that actually means that the Joe Biden has enough of a lead to overcome the Electoral College divisions. So if the election were held today, we now have such a, a pattern in the polls that Joe Biden would win. He is outside, increasingly outside the margin of error in polling, and... I I know enough about how polling works. I'm not going to dismiss it, but the election's not today. I don't know how this plays out. I thought it was very notable that over the weekend you had the Minnesota officials come out and say that it was white supremacists who were doing the rioting. And now Antifa is out of the shadows, admitting that it is Antifa. And now suddenly the the rioting and the violence went from a bad thing of white supremacists to a good thing of, of caring people who want social justice. It's amazing how the media just turned on a dime on that. I don't know how this plays out, and I would be deeply suspicious of any political prognosticator who told me that this is going to help or hurt the president. Uh, Will it, may it help the president? It might help the president. Uh, If the president offers safety and jobs, I, I think it might actually help the president. But if the president is viewed as to blame for it, in fact, right now, there's a lot of polling that shows a lot of people, including a number of the president's support, a significantly, a statistically significant number of the president's core supporters in the evangelical community in particular, blame the president for escalating the violence. And that's not good for the president. But never, ever underestimate the ability of progressives to overplay their hand. Uh, what is what is hurting the president today may ultimately help the president. What is hurting the president today may actually uh, wind up giving the president his reelection. But I don't know. I, I don't know. I I I I don't know. And you don't know. And the talking heads in Washington and on CNN and Fox and MSNBC and the rest—they don't know. The editorialists in the newspapers—they don't know none of them actually know whether this will help or hurt the president. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you with confidence it is, or it isn't. Here's what I know. The economy is the overarching influencer on how people vote. And right now the economy sucks and people have been sheltered in place and people are seeing their livelihoods literally go up in flames in certain parts of the country. And I think if the president can start getting people out of their houses, and back into their jobs and get the economy going again, that it will help the president. I think it is notable. You know, let me put in a plug here for First Liberty Building and Loan that regularly sponsors this program. First Liberty Building and Loan, if you want to go get a PPP loan from them, uh, their website is firstlibertyga.com. And you can go to FirstLibertyGA.com, you can click on the Apply Now button, and you can apply and get a loan through First Liberty. Uh, They can't guarantee it, but they'll do their best to get you in. And the odds are they might very well be able to get you in. Why? There's a story out today that there are still PPP loans untapped, that there are still a great many people who have yet to need PPP. And that's actually a very good sign. It suggests, in fact, that uh, businesses have not needed that extra help. And in fact, Congress is now looking at maybe extending PPP for the businesses that need it and not adding funds for new applications because there's still money in there for new applications. So you may just be able to do a rollover loan and get more money to keep your business closed, but you'll keep your employees employed. And it looks like consumer spending is starting to trickle back up. It looks like people are starting to go back to work. It looks like business is going back to normal. Now, it's not going to be completely normal. Like at my business, I got a memo the other day. If I go to my business, I got to wear a face mask unless I'm in my office. Or behind the microphone. But I think the economy is going to matter more than the rioting today. Because people will forget the rioting by whatever the next news cycle is. Maybe we'll go back to I, I suspect we're gonna go back into nightmare scenario with the virus. And here's why. There are Reports out today, in fact, I see a football player who said he participated in a march in Oklahoma and he wore a face mask and yet has gotten COVID-19. He presumes it came from the protest. I doubt it came from the protest given that it was only the other day that he participated and it it should take more time for him to show symptoms, but maybe he did. If so, it may spread to other people. Uh, And I suspect what you're going to see and what what you're starting to read in the media now is that the virus may spread again. And it's very funny, uh, the the very same media that shamed the white protesters around the country who wanted their businesses reopened so they could go back to work and earn their livelihoods, they're perfectly happy to give a pass to the protesters now. So the... People who wanted to restore their livelihoods, their protests were bad, but the Black Lives Matters protests are good in the eyes of the media. There will be some people who seethe with resentment over that level of hypocrisy. But ultimately, as we get to November, it's going to be jobs and the economy that matter. That again is why I think if the president takes the, the safe and back to work mantra, that he can win the election. I don't really know how this ultimately long term impacts it, but I know that if people start going back to work, that it is going to help the president. And I suspect what you're going to hear from the president's team moving forward is a recurring statement that the media and the Democrats don't want you to go back to work because they don't want the economy to get going again because they do not want the president to get reelected. And if they keep saying it over and over and over, if they keep saying it, I think more people have the, are the odds are people are going to believe it. And they're going to believe it for legitimate, good, right, true reasons, because it's happening. It really is happening. You see this, You you see Democrats not wanting you to go back to work because they are scared of an economic rebound. And that I think is something that's going to matter. That I think is something that when people start looking and they see the president wants me to get back to work and to have my job and the Republicans want to incentivize people going back to work by paying bonuses, no longer for the unemployed, but for the people going back to work, I think stuff like that changes the fundamental underlying dynamic. Again, 71% of Americans say the number one issue right now for them is the economy. A quarter of Americans are unemployed. Half of black Americans are unemployed right now. You want to know why people are rioting in the streets? They got nothing better to do. They're outraged. They're mad. They've been cooped up at home. They feel like their livelihood has been taken away from them. Their destiny is now in the hands of bureaucrats and health officials and epidemiologists. And now this happened with the police and George Floyd? I mean, we, we had a powder keg and the George Floyd situation exploded it. This matters to people but this matters to people uh with the foundation of economic unrest. So you fix the one that actually I think has real-term positive consequences for the presidency, for the president. I, I think it does. Uh and never ever 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 underestimate the ability of the left to overplay their hands on this. Uh the the Democrats just because the and you know this is something um you know it, it is it is very likely that you let let's say you're white. I don't care where you are in the nation, let let's say you're white. It is very likely that you could go much more easily than a black person. You could go all day and not encounter a black person, particularly if you are a liberal and you live in a coastal area, you live in a, a liberal metropolis. It is very likely that you as a white liberal could go all day and only encounter other white liberals. It is why conservatives tend to understand liberals better than liberals understand conservatives because a conservative encounters liberals more on a daily basis. And arguably, in the same logic, a black person understands white people more than white people understand black people because a a black person is more likely to encounter a white person on a day-to-day basis than a white person is a black person. So you see things differently. But – when you're in the media, you encounter other white liberals who went to journalism school at Columbia or, or wherever, and you think a lot the same way, and you all have the same heroes, and, and, and you all affirm the same stuff, whether it's right or not, and so the media amplifies the left and the left amplifies the media. And in this feedback loop of self-congratulations and backpats, they overplay their hand way more than conservatives tend to overplay. And that's not to say conservatives don't overplay their hand. They do. Republicans can overplay their hands as well. But in stuff like this, I think the Democrats and the media tend to allow progressive activists to overplay their hands in a way that's actually detrimental to the Democrats and the left, because that's all they know. Everyone in their circle says, hey, it's great. It's great. I mean, just, just let, me, let me play you this clip, and, and just think about this. Over the last several days, the president of the United States has attacked Bill de Blasio as an incompetent mayor of New York, and the media has defended Bill de Blasio to the hilt because of the president's attacks. Well, now Andrew Cuomo's come out and echoed the same attacks. The NYPD
3: and the mayor did not do their job last night. I believe that. Uh, second, you have 38,000 NYPD people it is the largest police department in the United States of America use 38,000 people and protect property use the police protect property and people look at the videos it was a disgrace I believe that I believe the mayor underestimates the scope of the problem. I think he underestimates the duration of the problem. Uh, And I don't think they've used enough police to address the situation.
0: That's what Donald Trump said about de Blasio and the media blasted Donald Trump for saying it. But here comes Andrew Cuomo saying the same thing. And suddenly the media is like, oh, someone spoke truth. I mean, the media doesn't like Bill de Blasio, but they'll defend him if the president attacks him. It really is bizarre. I mean, if Donald Trump were to come out tomorrow and, you know, people made this joke, the president himself has made this joke. But if Donald Trump came out tomorrow and walked on water, they would attack him for not being able to swim. If Donald Trump came out tomorrow and cured cancer, they would attack him for putting a bunch of doctors out of work. I I got plenty of criticisms of the president, and frankly, I don't think he's handled himself very well over the last several days. But my goodness, uh, the the man does say true things, and the media treats it as false until someone else comes along and echoes it. Uh, It's just – it's genuinely, truly bizarre To see the media, uh, when the president attacks Bill de Blasio's incompetence, say, no, 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 de Blasio is great. He's wonderful. He's wonderful. Did you hear what Andrew Cuomo said? He said Bill de Blasio is incompetent. He must be incompetent. Andrew Cuomo said so. And then you got the silly love fest on CNN with his brother. The, The whole thing is just bizarre. How does this play for the president? I have no idea, but, but I never underestimate the left's ability to overplay their hand on this and wind up helping the president. He has benefited his entire political career from the left overplaying their hand. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number eight seven seven nine seven eric 877 973 7425 To the phones we go, Bill, welcome to the show. If I can click the button, there you go, Bill. How are you? Ben. Uh, ben. All right. Welcome. <laughs>
4: Eric, this is Ben. I am uh, 62 today, and you're 45.
0: <laughs> happy birthday.
4: Well, listen, it's great. I figure today, Eric, from K-Spring, happy, uh, happy birthday. So the word for today is ankle biters, crickets, and bit dog collars first. <laughs> so uh, the, ankle, the ankle biters are, um, are the folks that, that want to gap about everything that doesn't matter. And the truth is that all intelligent thought starts at least four feet off the ground (laughs) and they never can get there. The, the, uh, crickets are when you ask them for intelligent ideas. Uh, that's kind of all you hear is crickets. And then the bit dog hollers first is when you uh, really encroach on somebody's territory and all they can do is holler at you. They don't have anything else to say. That's That's the truth. We're seeing a lot of that is this that so uh, good to see you have another birthday Um, absolutely good to hear from you uh, as well well uh, yeah i sent you a picture this morning of hayes caught a five pound trout out of the lake
0: nice So
4: uh, check your it's a beautiful it's a beautiful thing i i i
0: I will find that i was i was thinking about you the other day i gotta let you go there because i got this commercial coming up but I, i look i appreciate it very much i was thinking about you the other day uh, we, we have, for those of you who don't know, uh, we have gone out to, to dinner a couple of times with his son who just keeps growing and it makes me feel old. Um, and it's just beautiful land up there near cave Springs that I just, I need to go hide out at. Um, but thank you for the birthday wishes. Uh, there's a story I, I got to get to before we get to break. And this is from the Washington free beacon. I have had Steven Gutowski on this program. Uh, he is a great, probably the best reporter on guns in this country. An estimated six million guns have been sold since the coronavirus outbreak began in March as May marked the third consecutive month of record high sales, more than 1.7 million guns were sold in May 2020, according to an analysis by Small Arms Analytics and Forecasting. This is an all-time record for the month and an 80% increase from 2019. The spike in sales comes as rioting grips the nation, and the coronavirus continues to dominate headlines. Jürgen Bauer, the group's chief economist, calls the trend unprecedented. Firearm sales have surged in unprecedented ways, he said in a statement. The boom in handgun sales has been particularly noticeable in recent months. May is typically the slowest month of gun sales in the spring, but 2020's record-setting monthly figures were down only slightly from April's $1.8 million and March's $2.5 million. The highest sales total ever recorded in a single month was March's 2.5 million guns sold. Most surprising to observers is the fact that May 2020 saw more sales than both March and April of 2019 combined. The record-setting sales pace has been driven in large part by new gun owners, according to the National Sports Shooting Foundation, the Gun Industries Trade Group. Our recent survey of firearm retailers shows us that 40% of these gun buyers are buying a firearm for the first time. Of those first-time gun owners, 40% are women, and these buyers are overwhelmingly purchasing handguns for personal protection. You need to think about that for just a moment because the media has been selling all of us this idea that gun owners are the ones who buy the guns. We don't have any more new gun owners in this country. You you hear that sentiment on TV uh, regularly now, that the people who are buying guns are the people who have previously bought guns, that there aren't a bunch of new people owning guns out there, uh, which is why it's okay to go after guns and the gun industry now, because everyone who's ever wanted a gun has a gun and no, no new person is going to get a gun. And yet this is happening. More and more people are doing this. More and more people are are buying guns and it tends to be women. Now, that doesn't mean they're suddenly gonna become massive advocates for the second amendment. A lot of these people still support gun control measures of one kind or another, but the fact that they don't feel safe right now suggests polling is missing something as well about the president's chances in November. The fact that so many people don't feel safe right now, they're out of work, they're alone. There are looters on the march through their neighborhoods, vandalizing things. That suggests that there is an opportunity for the president and the messaging there, if they can get the president focused. Now we all know, and listen, it is just—it's a statement of truth that the president isn't good at message discipline. It's just a statement of fact. But at the same time. It is also a statement of fact that if you sit down and explain to the president what his messaging needs to be and why, he tends to gravitate towards that message. So it is possible, it is very possible to get the president on a message and keep him on that message. You know, if you remember, George W. Bush wasn't the smartest politician. He's a smart man, but he wasn't the smartest campaigner. But they told him essentially every time your message is help is on the way. People are in crisis and help is on the way. The military is in crisis. Help is on the way. Businesses are in crisis. Help is on the way. And every single time Bush was asked a question in 2000, say help is on the way. Why vote for me? Help is on the way. This is going to be fixed. Help is on the way. The president can say I'm going to keep you safe, and I'm going to get you back to work. Joe Biden's not. I'm going to keep you safe. I'm going to get you back to work. The Democrats won't. He's got that message if he'll just go with it. And to me, it seems like a no-brainer. Maybe I need to write about this. I know they read what I write. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425. I got a... a, Oh, look, Twitter is is shooting these balloons up because it's my birthday. I, I've actually got to find, where is this? I bookmarked it. There. Yes, Kyle Smith from National Review. I wanted to spend a little bit of time on this because I do think this is one of the things that could potentially change. Given the the rioting and vandalism, and essentially what you're seeing actually is a number of communities saying they're gonna wind down aggressive law enforcement. You're seeing New York City collapsing. I mean, again, the governor of New York is out blasting Bill de Blasio for his handling of this stuff. And you're seeing Joe Biden come out. Well, let me play this audio from Joe Biden.
5: The action will not be completed in the first hundred days of my presidency if I'm fortunate enough to be elected or even in my entire term. It's gonna take the work of a generation. But if this agenda will take time to complete, it should not wait for the first 100 days of my presidency to get started. A down payment on what is long overdue should come now, should come immediately. I call on the Congress to act this month on measures that will be the first step in this direction, starting with real police reform. Congressman Jeffries has a bill to outlaw chokeholds. Congress should put it on the president's desk in the next few days. There are other measures to stop transferring weapons of war to police forces, improve oversight and accountability, to create a model use of force standard. That also should be made law this month. No more excuses, no delays. If Mitch McConnell can bring in the United States Senate to confirm Trump's unqualified judicial nominees who will run roughshod over our Constitution now, It's time to pass legislation that will give true meaning to our constitutional promise of equal protection under the law.
0: Uh, Yeah, see, what I think is is going to happen is there needs to be a reaction, but I'm afraid there's going to be an overreaction. And we're going to continue to have this situation of uh, increased lawlessness within American urban cores as essentially police decide, you know what, I, I don't want to get blamed. And democratic politicians who run these cities say, well, you know what, you are to blame, stop, stop, stop law enforcement. On top of that, you've got the virus and the virus, which no one has immunity to, continuing to spread. So that brings me to this thread by Kyle Smith. Let me read this thread to you. Americans are going to flee the cities like we did in the post 68 era. 30 years of great progress for cities undone in one spring. Everyone going to be moving to suburbs, exurbs, and buying guns. Going to be more homeschoolers, too. Going to be a lot less faith in government. Going to be a lot more people working remotely who won't be commuting into cities anymore and will absolutely lose interest in funding urban institutions. In other words, virtually everybody who has taken to the streets is going to get exactly what they don't want. People left behind the cities with will be heavy consumers of government sur- services. High earners are going to flee. Cities will raise taxes, causing businesses to pack up and move to suburbs like they did in the 70s. Cities will then raise taxes more. The things that successful people like about cities will follow out to the suburbs, high-end restaurants, for instance, culture. People will struggle to think of a reason to go downtown again. Dense populations, of course, vote Democrat. Cities will lose congressional seats. Federal funding will adjust accordingly. Title for the past week of what's been going on should be suicide of the cities. And then there's gun ownership, of course. As people buy guns, people tend to become more conservative and more more zealous advocates of individual liberty and protecting themselves. Voters with households and guns overwhelmingly vote Republican. In fact, in 2016, a household that had a gun uh, majority in every single state except New Hampshire, the households with guns tended to vote Republican. In 2016, the voters in households without guns, overwhelmingly, except in West Virginia, voted Democrat. Ironically, in Wyoming, there was no one. There were no statistical sampling of people who didn't own a gun in the home. Wyoming, overwhelmingly Republican. That is a an important factor here. 40% of new gun owners, first-time gun owners were women. And the overwhelming majority of first-time gun owners happened in the last couple of months. And I got to tell you that there are people who disagree with this. There are people who believe this is all wrong. There are people who believe the cities will just be fine. But I don't really think they will. You've got a virus. When you're relying on public transportation, listen, for the last 20, 30 years, what have we been hearing? Uh, we got global warming and climate change coming. Therefore, we need to get people out of their communities and into cities, pack them into cities, abandon the, the suburbs and the exurbs and the rural areas, let it all heal, stay in the cities. Use public transportation. Reduce carbon emissions by relying on planes, trains, buses, and electric cars. You ultimately, get rid of the planes and use boats. And that's not going to work now because there's a virus spreading. In fact, do you know the, the the class of people who were most affected in New York City now? Uh, apparently, allegedly, the class of people most affected in New York City by the virus That would be the subway workers. And the people who had the longest commutes on the trains. The people who drove in the subways the longest. Who had to sit in the cars the longest. Who came from furthest away. They had the worst outcomes when it came to the virus. The people who rode by themselves in their cars turned out better. So telecommunity, I suspect, going to be here to say we'll probably see a real boon in telecommunications infrastructure in this country. We'll probably see even higher speed Internet. I suspect there are plans in place right now. A lot of the the cable and phone companies of America are right now trying to figure out ways to deploy uh, 5G not into the urban cores but now into the suburbs. The conspiracy theorists of the suburbs will grow. I suspect there are plans right now among the telecom uh, cable companies and and the telephone companies to start spreading high-speed fiber more into the suburbs. They had been doing it in urban areas where it was denser, it was easier to do, but now you got all these people living out in the suburbs who are going to start telecommuting more. They're going to want higher-speed internet. I think between the virus and stuff like what's happened this week, uh, you are going to see a rethinking of city living. I think Kyle Smith is right in that. Now, I think some of it is somewhat overstated. There will still be destination cities. New York City, for example, is going to be a place you still go. I mean, even in the 1970s and 80s, when New York City was a, a drug and crime-infested hellhole, people still went to New York City because they wanted to go to Broadway. You'll still go to Broadway. But do you really need to go to Atlanta? I see the need to go, go hang out in Savannah and have fun in the old-school downtown area. But do you need to go to Atlanta? Do you really need to, if you live in the suburbs, do you really need to go to Atlanta? Maybe the outskirts of Atlanta. Do you need to go downtown? There's some nice restaurants in downtown Atlanta, but do you really need to go? Do you really, if you live in Macon, Georgia, okay, so this is one of those things. So uh, I'm going to get very site specific here for just a minute. Uh, So I live in Bibb County. I live on the North end of Bibb County. Used to be uh, a city councilman for the city of Macon. And there is just this this big explosion of lofts in downtown Macon. When I was a lawyer, I worked for a couple of companies that were making the lofts. There are tons and tons of lofts. And apparently a lot of them are full, but I just, I've never understood the demand. I mean, for example, uh, they tried to put a grocery store down. It's a, it's an, uh, it's a food desert. That's the latest thing on the left. The latest outreach food deserts. You have to actually go somewhere to buy groceries. You can't walk down the street. Oh my gosh, it's a food desert. I've got to go a mile to the Kroger. I've always looked at what's happening in downtown Macon and thought this is a bubble. I don't know who's buying these. Now, now, some of it is retirees. It's not a lot of young. It's it's some young hipsters and millennials with kids, but not a ton of them. There's certainly an uptick in the restaurants downtown. There's some very good restaurants in downtown Macon. Piedmont Brewery has opened again for in-room dining. Uh, it, it, the Moonhanger Group, which owns the Rookery, those of you familiar with Macon, the, the Rookery is one of the, the greatest restaurants to ever exist in the city of Macon. It is hugely popular. People uh, make a, a trip to go to the rookery. It's not a fancy place. It was a hole-in-the-wall dive bar when I was in law school. And there, there's still an element of that there. But it's really good food, really good burgers, good milkshakes. And they opened and they gave all their employees a COVID-19 test. And they reopened and they thought they'd be able to celebrate that they had tested their employees. Well, a couple of them turned out to be asymptomatic but positive. So they had shut down the restaurants again. Now I'm ready for them to reopen. But you see more business even at night. You you go down to the Rookery in downtown Macon or you go to Piedmont Brewery in downtown Macon, which is fantastic. uh, And there's a crowd at night now. And there are people, single people and older people live in downtown, but people drive downtown. And I think in, in smaller cities, there will still be some of that. In downtown Madison, Georgia, which is a beautiful place, I still think you will find people who go. But do I need to go to downtown? Do I need to go to downtown Columbus, Georgia? Do you need to go into downtown Charlotte if you live in the suburbs of Charlotte or wade through all that construction and mess to go to downtown Chattanooga when there's a virus on the loose and there are protesters smashing businesses? Do you need to go? And when you get out of the habit of going because of the virus and and you can now telecommute and now you can't go because of the crime and the police aren't doing their job in some of these cities, why bother? Just stay home. Go to the restaurant down the street from you. I think we're we will see some reordering of society, and and of course there will be people at think tanks who get paid a lot of money to figure this sort of stuff out. But but I think you're going to see this sort of stuff. I I do, uh, and and it's going to be coupled, I think, with the reordering of priorities and and how we police. And I think it could wind up going badly for a lot of people. I, w- I want to play something Mike Pitt said about the rioters and the looters. He said this yesterday.
6: First and foremost, so we share the the grief of every American at the tragic death uh, of George Floyd. And as the president said yesterday in the Rose Garden, that uh, we stand by peaceful protesters in this country. But the violence, the looting, uh, the rioting, uh, and, and, uh, uh, and, and people using violence against, uh, against shopkeepers and law enforcement is just a disgrace. And President Trump made it clear yesterday uh, that we are going to we're going to call on governors across the country to use the uh, full strength of their National Guard as needed to restore law and order to their street. This is about preserving the right of Americans to peacefully protest. It's also about simply ensuring that that uh, that we protect all the citizens uh, of uh, of our communities. It is uh, uh, it is uh, it is really. Uh, uh, inexplicable, Jackie, that, um, that uh, people that are showing up uh, just to riot and just to loot in these protests uh, are actually doing violence in many cases uh, to the very stores and, and the very businesses that, um, that serve the communities that they are supposedly there to champion.
0: The businesses, they're supposedly served a champion and they're destroying them.
6: Yeah, I, I
0: think a lot of these store store owners and businesses might pack up. I wonder how many of them will just give up where they are. The, the, maybe not give up altogether, but just give up where they are, that they've been destroyed. I mean, you, you, for God's sakes, we've been sheltered in place for months. People were already on hard times. And then the the riders came through and, and destroyed some of these businesses. I, y'all, I, this isn't a sustainable thing. And I think that the, the, the media overwhelmingly misses this because the media is in the, listen, the media is not going to leave New York city, the reporters and, and whatnot. They're not going to leave because they their they're corporate headquarters. They've invested a lot of money there, but a lot of people are, uh, a lot of people are going to walk away from the cities now. There's no reason to go back They they can telecommute. They don't have to go there anymore. They'll, they'll abandon ship and you will see the economic fallout in the cities and those are democratic areas. And those people will move to the suburbs and those people will get a plot of land and they'll become a little more conservative about it. They, they won't be, they won't be conservative like you and me, but they'll be more conservative. You Get some squishy suburban moderate Republicans that they'll favor, they'll favor guns and they'll want low taxes. And that actually benefits Donald Trump's party. Ironically, Donald Trump for the short term could be hurting the Republicans and for the long term setting them up for continued growth of a party that blends even more demographically in this country because it won't just be white people fleeing the cities. Uh, looking for a better life. And when when people, regardless of their skin color, race, ethnicity, creed, when they get a plot of land and the local school board and the local Democratic politician says, that's not really yours, that's ours as part of the collective, uh, they will say, no, thank you. I will vote for Donald Trump's party. I, I, here's your bizarre story of the day. a A man has lost his job. And I, I don't know all of the underlying circumstances here, but it it just, it seems a little bit bizarre here. Uh, Kings announcer Grant Napier has resigned after All Lives Matter comment. The Sacramento Kings announced Tuesday that television play-by-play announcer and sports 1140 KHTK radio show host Grant Napier has resigned from the team following the All Lives Matter comedy made on Twitter on Tuesday per Jason Jones of The Athletic. Uh, apparently let's see someone, uh, a former King center, DeMarcus cousins asked the announcer what he thought of the black lives matters movement. And Grant Napier replied, Hey, how are you? Thought you forgot about me. Haven't heard from you in years. All lives matter. Every single one. Um, I, I, I would. I, I oppose the idea that you can't say all lives matter. I think you've got to be willing and able to say it. And, and let's, let's be clear here. You say it and overwhelmingly people are going to come out to get you because they, they've decided it's, it's, it's a sign of racism or something to say that all lives matter because we're supposed to focus on black lives mattering. Black lives matter. But all lives matter, too. We are all created in God's image. And uh, Napier has been their play-by-play announcer since 1988, the, the Sacramento Kings, and now he's gone. Um, y'all, I'm not going to stop telling you that all lives matter. And I got to tell you, I, I think when you're shaming people or corporations for putting up uh, black squares or not putting up black squares, that you too are part of the problem. Uh, there, there is clearly an, an element of cultural coercion going on. Uh, I, I saw people yesterday, I, I started the show with this, I saw people yesterday being shamed for not putting up black squares or being shamed for putting up stuff other than black squares on, on Instagram. The whole thing's ridiculous because a lot of the people, let's be honest, a lot of the people who are putting up the black squares, that's all they're going to do. And now you've got the the 1619 project coordinator for the New York Times coming out and saying that, that uh, destruction of private property is not violence. You're going to see these cultural revolutionaries in the United States trying to, to rework terms and, and virtue signal. And that's part of the problem here is, uh, uh, listen, again, I, I, I've spent the way more time on this topic today than I should, but I'm going to here. The man who helped write the law by which a lot of black men have gone to jail is not going to change things should you vote for him in November. The government that gave you slavery and Jim Crow and uh, anti-interracial marriage laws and affirmative action and uh, the great society that broke up families is not a government that is going to find the solutions to the problems of what ails us as a nation. But what you're going to find is a group of progressive radicals are going to use all of this virtue signaling out there right now to browbeat their own agenda. You will not be allowed to sit it out. You will be made to care on this as well. You will be forced to care. You will be forced to wear the ribbons. You will be forced to, to put up the black box. You will be forced to do these things. There's nothing wrong by the way. There's nothing wrong. If if you care passionately about the issue and want to put up the black box, do it, but do more than that. And that's part of the problem here. Is what they're conditioning you to do is to do the minimum feel-good virtue signaling and do nothing else. Leave that to them, as they try to dismantle society. They're playing with fire on this too, because because there will be backlashes coming, and unfortunately, I think that'll make uh, long-time problems probably even worse. We will we will see these things happen. Uh, 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 Joe Biden in in his speech.
5: You know, I've said from the outset of this election that we're in the battle for the soul of this nation. And we are in the battle for the soul of this nation. What we believe, and maybe most importantly, who we want to be, it's all at stake. That's truer today than it's ever been, at least in my lifetime. And it's this urgency. It's in this urgency. We can find a path forward.
0: You're right. Well, here's Charlemagne, you know, Charlemagne, the God, the, the, the Breakfast Club host who Rush Limbaugh talked to the other day. Here's him on this.
5: So I think, you know, Biden's record in the Senate actually mm. reflects very racist legislation, but he has a chance to correct that by doing right by black people.
0: Uh, he's got a chance to correct it. Yep. Cause, cause you know, Trump, Trump's not going to. So buying Kelly, and Conway, I don't have time for this clip. We've only got about 40 seconds left. Uh, Kellyanne Conway went on Fox news and pointed out Joe Biden was, has been in Washington for 40 years while all these problems were happening and he hadn't done anything to improve him. Meanwhile, the president signed the criminal justice reform legislation that got a lot of black men out of jail. I, I, I think the president can tra- see the Democrats are so convinced that this is a weakness of the president's. I think he can turn it into a strength. I really do. But he's got to have some message discipline to be able to do it over the next several months in the run-up to November. I think it's possible. He's got five months to figure it out. I think not only is it possible, but it would be impactful if he did it. He said he wanted to make a play for black voters. This is his opportunity to make that play largely by pointing out Joe Biden's failure to do anything in 40 years.